the immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. <clears throat> hello, 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 hello. So this is episode one of Turn on the Light. Um, so my name is Louise. Um, and I'm just a little person on this huge planet um, that I happen to love, and I'm here to remind you all um, to turn on the light. And that basically means to have a little bit of hope and faith in stuff that's going on around us at the moment in terms of the planet and climate change um, and extinction events and all the crap that you see when you turn on the news and you just despair in yourself. Um, and you get really anxious about it, I do. Um, so I just wanted to give some little bit of joy into people's lives um so this podcast is to celebrate the conservation successes that have happened all around the globe um so my story is basically um when i was a little teeny tiny little girl i wanted to be a vet and then i realized that i couldn't handle dealing with sick animals on a daily basis and i definitely couldn't deal with putting them down so that dream quickly died um and i changed tack and went and did an animal biology degree at university, which was great, it was amazing, and that led me to do um, some ecology work, that led me to work at Jersey Zoo, um, who are affiliate, who are attached to Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, basically, who are incredible and who have saved species from extinction with their captive breeding efforts and efforts in the field, which I will definitely, definitely touch on at some point probably more than once um in this series of podcasts um so kudos to them um and then following on from that i did some work in madagascar which was the greatest experience of my life i literally lived on a beach it was incredible um yeah did some wildlife surveys out there um helping out the little black lemur buddies um and did some work in indonesia um and then came back to the uk because because as with most things in life, a girl's got to eat and pay bills, and there's a lot, a lot of conservation work that is not paid at all, or well paid, um, full stop, so yeah, came back and, and worked in charities here, um, I'm currently working for an animal welfare charity in London, um, which is great and it's amazing, um, but I also feel that pull to like, get back into the conservation world and talk about these kind of things again, and so yeah, this I feel like this is the best way to put my passions out there in a positive way and give some positive energy out to the world, which God knows we all need it right about now. Um, so the basic format, just to take you through it, just to explain how things will go, um, every episode will be the story of a chosen species of the week. Um, at the moment, I'll have a new episode every two weeks, um, just because, as I said, I, I work full time and... I've got a dog and a pasta keep, you know, all the rest of that boring adult stuff. So I didn't want to end up disappointing anyone um, or well, if anyone listens um, or just, you know, falling behind a schedule. So I'm putting a realistic one out there to start with. That may change. So anyway, chosen species. Yeah, every week it'll be all about them, their struggles, their triumphs, um, followed by some fun facts about the species. Who doesn't love fun facts? And that's something else to make people smile. Um, and then the second half will be an interview with a conservationist. Um, you can't see me, but I'm doing the little air quotey finger things. Um, because by conservationist, um, I kind of mean anyone. There's a really wide definition. 
um, to be honest. And people who are passionate about the natural world in any way, shape or form can kind of fit into that conservationist environmentalist bracket, you know, whatever you're trying to do to help the planet if you're going zero waste, if you're going vegan, doing veganuary, just reducing your meat consumption, like, you know, getting a keep cup to get your coffee instead of a throwaway one, like anything, you know. Um, but yeah, there'll mostly be people who I've met along my travels, along the way, um, friends from university, um, and then eventually, hopefully, some of my heroes out there in the conservation world. Fingers crossed if they'll entertain my emails, bugging them to please come and talk to me. Um, yeah, so that's the basic format. The interview will be that person's stories, their experiences, um, and yeah. That's sort of, in a nutshell, how things will go. Um, and I'm lucky enough for this first episode to have an amazing interviewee um, who is basically a goddess who I worship. Um, her name is Jessie, um, and we will talk to her later on. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for that and get excited for that because she is just incredible. Also, just a little disclaimer um, before we go any further. These stories that I'm telling are stories that I've researched online, be it through journals, be it through um, NGO or conservation charities, organisations, um, scientists in the field. Um, so I've pulled from various different sources, which I hope are reputable sources, and I have sort of, you know, checked it and fact-checked and stuff like that. But I just want to say I'm not an authority on anything, obviously. Um, so if anything that I'm saying is wrong, or if you know it to be wrong, or, you know, you hear me spouting something and then realise months down the line that it's actually, you know, a bunch of hoo-ha, then please let me know because, yeah, I am dipping my toe into the podcasting waters and I'm totally new at this and I don't, I'm just kind of feeling my way. Definitely don't know how, how to edit, so we'll see how the first few episodes turn out. Um, but yes, I'm sure my research skills will improve as time goes on um, and all the rest of it but yeah if you have anything that you need to correct me on or anything you'd like to say then please do i will give my contact details at the end of the episode um so without further ado i'd like to introduce you to my first episode species a so drum roll please okay so first species is the adorable wonderful charismatic mountain gorilla Latin name, Gorilla Berenge Berenge. And I picked a wonderful charismatic species for my first episode to draw the people in. Everybody loves a gorilla. And so, yes, without further ado, let's talk about our mountain friends. Okay, quick aside here before we start talking actually about the mountain gorilla. I realised that I recorded that previous section on my laptop and the microphone is really crappy um, and now I'm recording this on just my normal handheld mobile phone this is much better so I think going forwards I'm gonna record on my phone okay cool thanks bye so our story starts in the remote mountain rainforests that straddle three countries those countries being Rwanda, Uganda, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, two groups of mountain gorillas live here, uh, one in the Virunga Volcanoes National Park, and one in the Buindi Impenetrable National Park, um, which 
is Uganda, and the Virunga Volcanoes National Park actually spans all three of those countries. Um, so mountain gorillas are two, are one of two subspecies of the eastern gorilla, um, and they are highly social mammals, and they live in stable family groups um, with long-term male and female bonds. Um, and they move about quite a bit um, in their leafy habitats. And the silverback of a troop um, will defend his group rather than territory, so they're not actually sort of territorial. Um, and a fun little fact that I found out about them, that each gorilla has a unique nose print. How cute is that? Um, well, I had to slip that one in here. There'll be more fun facts later on, a little fun section. Um, but yeah, that one was just really cute and I had to get it out quite early on. <laughs> um, so yeah, what we know about mountain gorillas um, is actually largely thanks to Diane Fossey. Um, their social structure, their behaviour, their um, actually even accurate census data to get an idea of the numbers of them um, is all pretty much down to Diane Fossey, which I'm sure a lot of you will have heard that name um, and know a little bit about her. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit more now. Um, so she conducted an 18-year study um, on the Virunga volcanoes population of gorillas, starting in 1967, when she set up the Karasoke Research Centre in Rwanda. Um, and she basically began all of the conservation efforts for gorillas as well. Um, she set up the Digit Fund, um, which is now called the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International. Um, still in existence today, bigger and better and brighter than ever, um, still fighting the good fight, um, which I'll talk more about in a little bit. Um, yeah, just a little note on um, sort of Diane's Fossey's death, which is a sad part of the story. Um, but yes, she was actually murdered um, in her in her hut in the Karasuke um, Research Centre. She was she was killed there. Um, and it's it's actually unsolved um, to this day. So, you know, if any uh, true crime aficionados want to try and solve that one, that'd be really cool. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's suspected that it was probably a poacher um, due to the efforts that were going against them and, and stopping them from killing the gorillas. Um, and so she was the driving force behind that, so she became very much a target. Um, which is terribly sad, but the legacy that she left is incredible. Um, so, you know, please do go to, to the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund International webpage. Do check that out. Um, if you haven't already, um, there's Gorillas in the Mist, which is a book and also a film about her research that she did with the mountain gorillas, um, where Sigourney Weaver plays her, which leads to my question that I ask all interviewees on my podcast of who they would like to play them in a movie of their life. <laughs> um, but yeah, more on that when we talk to Jessie later. Um, yeah, so she's yeah, she's basically badass um, and did amazing work for the gorillas and really um, understood them, their social structures, their groups, and um, set up this whole thing, this whole movement um, to help save them. So she's pretty amazing, um, and we love her. Um, so yeah, so obviously her work was for a reason. So let's talk a little bit about how gorilla populations got so low in the first place. Um, so in the late 70s, early 80s, populations of the mountain gorilla, um, thanks to the census that Diane Fossey did, um, their numbers got as low as around 240 individuals. Um, yeah, I mean, that is insane. Think about, you know, weddings that you've been to or conferences that you've been at. 
you look around, there's about 200 people in the room. <laughs> that is not very many at all. Um, crazy to think that it got to that point. Um, and there are several factors that caused this decline. Um, so obviously there's the, the old favourites um, of species decline of habitat destruction uh, due to human settlement and encroachment and clearing of land for agriculture. Um, so slash and burn techniques are used um, in a lot of African countries. Um, so that's literally where you'll cut down all of the foliage, all of the plant life, and then just raise the ground, just absolutely burn it um, to ash to make the ground more fertile to plant agricultural um, crops. Um, so that was done a lot. Illegal logging, of course, that happens anywhere that there wood grows. Um, and also fragmentation and degradation of the habitat due to you know this logging and human settlement encroachment as well so villagers would um sort of start encroaching on one part of the forest cutting it off from an another part um which is a sort of slower more insidious cousin of total habitat destruction um because obviously as i said earlier gorillas are mobile are a mobile species and so that fragmentation can cut off um areas of to areas of the forest that they usually would move through um so it's you know it's just as bad as, as total all-out destruction um so these factors altogether you know mean that there's no longer the provision of the correct habitat for the gorillas to exist in um the food the resources um as, as i just touched on the size and scale of the land for roaming um so their basic existence is a lot harder um from all of these factors coming into play and then of course there is the poaching um, the hunting and perhaps killing of gorillas um, for many different reasons. So one of those is for sale on the black market. Um, hands, feet and heads, etc. are used in homes as you know decorative items, which for me is fucking vow. Excuse my language. Um, but yeah, it's disgusting. But they reach high sums on the black market and people want these things. Um, so yeah, poor, monetarily poor poachers will, will go out and do it and collect these things. Um... Yes, they can be taken alive um, for the pet trade, the illegal pet trade, which is massive world over. Primates are a prime species for being caught and put into the pet trade. And they're very popular. You know, you can see it on social media more and more these days. Um, you know, if you do see it, don't engage with it because it just gives it a, a bigger platform, supply and demand kind of thing. Um, but that's, yeah, that's why they're taken for that. Or they can be taken um, to sell to zoos. Um, Sorry, reputable zoos, I should add. Um, obviously, there are a lot of zoos doing a lot of good out there, but then there's also those ones which um, are not so good. Um, and often that's taking for the pet trade and taking to sell to zoos. Often both of these things, um, and also obviously the killing of adult gorillas as well, um, that will leave behind a defenceless child um, who probably won't make it on their own the abduction of an adult often leads to the death of their child which is terribly sad um also gorillas can be caught in snares um more often than not these snares are meant for other animals um other animals that are being caught for meat or other animals that are being poached um but obviously it's within where they live so they unfortunately do get caught themselves in the snares um or much more rarely they gorillas themselves can be hunted and caught for bushmeat um yeah, as I say, that's a rarer occurrence, but it still does happen. So that is also a factor. Um, so all of those factors can happen in isolation. Um, obviously, they're happening all together here. Um, and they happen all over the world to lots of different species. But 
and they're obviously bad enough on their own um but the things that add um to these factors and make it all the worse is the fact that the gorillas are existing in very unstable countries with a lot of war and civil unrest existing there um in the past and currently um so you kind of have the perfect storm for the breakdown of a species um so just a little history there. So the Rwandan Civil War happened between 1990 and 1993. The Rwandan Genocide, um, which people definitely should have heard of, but it wasn't, it's not really spoken about in sort of white Western media. Um, but that happened in 1994 with uh, hundreds and thousands and thousands of people being being killed, being slaughtered. Um, and then the Second Congo War happened between 1998 and 2003. Um, so a lot of war a lot of unrest going on in these countries um which leads to a general breakdown in law and order in these times uh, meaning that more illegal activity happens in the forests um and more human encounters with the gorilla populations um which can equal disease spread so for example respiratory infections respiratory disease that gorillas wouldn't necessarily get unless they'd come into contact with people um and even this is really horrible but even mines are being placed in their habitat because of war efforts and then they'll get caught up in that you know uh, accidentally stand on it can kill a human it definitely can kill a gorilla um so all of those things just led to a rise in mortality and a decrease in reproductive success um so all of these things together that i've just spoken about uh, they placed the gorilla the mountain gorilla firmly in the critically endangered category on the iucn red list um, just to explain that a bit, the IUCN Red List is the world's most comprehensive inventory of conservation status of biological species. Um, and they have a very, very strict set of criteria that evaluates the extinction risk to a species. Um, this is ideally reviewed every five years if the data is available. Um, but if it's a particularly data deficient species, then it will be done um, on, a, on a longer time frame than that. So maybe every 10 years. Um, and some species are just totally data deficient, so we don't know. Um, but thanks again to my girl, Diane, God rest her soul, we do know about the gorillas. Um, so they were able to be assessed and evaluated by the IUCN and put in that critically endangered category. Um, just IUCN, just for you all there, it stands for the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. So... Yeah, as I said, my bad bitch Diane Fossey and others decided that this was not bloody good enough and that they were not going to let these charismatic, amazing species uh, just dwindle down to the brink of nothingness. Um, so her Diane and her team undertook the first accurate census and employed active conservation practices to protect the gorillas. For example, anti-poaching patrols, gorilla trackers, etc. Like all sorts of things like that, which I'll go into more detail in later. Um so growing out of Diane's work um, came the International Gorilla Conservation Programme. They were inspired by Diane's work and it led on from that. Um, and it was formally established in 1991. And it was a unique coalition between three different NGOs. So it was the African Wildlife Foundation, Flora and Fauna International and WWF. Um, so they all came together to form the International Gorilla Conservation Programme in 1991, the year of yours truly's birth. Um, so it's been around for almost 30 years. So I think it gives you a little clue to my age. I'm old. Um, yeah, so the governments of the three countries where the mountain gorillas exist also sort of stepped up the protections of national parks and communities came together. You know, most rangers employed um, for these conservation efforts are local people. 
Um, the Bwindi National Park actually had its first um, monitor, official monitoring and it was officially made um, a national park in the 90s as well. Um, so everything really started to sort of get serious, like really, really serious, and people started really buying into it around, around the 90s, around that time. So to explain a little bit of how the conservation efforts happened... Um, so active conservation, that involves um, patrols, the anti-poaching teams, trackers, um, active protection of the gorillas on the ground, um, armed guards, constant vet care available for those who are diseased or caught in snares. Um, so the trackers themselves, um, they would track and find the troops of gorillas every day um, and record information on them. So that would include uh, bits about their health, their appearance, if there'd been any change in the group composition, if they had any births, any deaths, immigration, emigration to the group um, to allow them to track population dynamics. Um, and also behavioural data was collected or is collected, sorry, too. Um, so now there's like a 50 plus year database of um information on these gorillas so there's a uh forever growing understanding of them um and obviously the more you understand a species the better you can conserve it um so that's what the trackers do the anti-poaching teams um they're there to seek and guard against illegal forest activities especially the poachers um, they protect the forest as a whole you know from illegal logging and stuff but their main sort of modus operandi is to get those anti-poaching teams um and they will destroy poacher equipment and weapons um, when they find them, um, which, as I said earlier, is kind of a theory as to why Diane was killed. Um, so, you know, she'd find poachers' huts with all their equipment and necessary bits and bobs inside and she'd burn them, which is fucking badass um, and good for her. But obviously that is suspected as to what led um, to her murder, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so the act of conservation, in a nutshell, bringing it all together... Um, is just to ensure the stronger safeguards for those habitats where the gorillas exist in. Um, so, as I say, yeah, manpower, people on the ground to make sure um, that they're safe babies. Um, and another arm to the efforts was theoretical conservation. Um, so this is sort of to aid tourism in the area. Um to generate revenue um, so improving roads and lodgings for tourists etc to bring them into the parks to, to view these groups um, which it, it, that can be more of a controversial kind of idea um, some people are not like into the whole ecotourism volunteerism thing um, and there's obviously very good reasons why um, so ecotourism means people coming in to see the gorillas and as I touched on earlier that could bring disease in um, so there are very strict rules around how the groups can be viewed, who can view them, um, and, and how sort of that process is undertaken. Um, so it's certain habituated troops of gorillas that are chosen um, for people to go and view. Uh, Diane, of course, started the process of habituation of gorillas. Um, so it's basically, habituation is basically a really simple learning experience for an animal. So... Um, the exposure to a stimulus so often so regularly that eventually they stop responding to that stimulus so in this case the stimulus is the human person um, so standing there observing the gorillas and eventually they'll stop reacting to that person being there and just carry on about their day as usual so that was started by Diane and then there are certain families um, within the, pop the known populations of mountain gorillas that are habituated to people um so obviously the trackers can collect that behavioral data and information about them and 
they're the groups that are picked for tourists to go and view. Um, yes, yeah, so as I said, some people are not keen on it, um, the risk of disturbance, the spread of disease. Um, but yes, rigorous guidelines are in place here. So you must have a permit, the tourist person themselves, individual must have a permit to be allowed to go and take part in this. Um, absolutely limited numbers are allowed on a, you know, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis to go and see the gorillas. It's very strictly controlled. Um, and at least a seven metre distance must be between you and the gorilla at all times. And that's to mitigate any any disease spread and anything like that. Um, and it brings in a hell of a lot of revenue, um, raises awareness for the gorillas. And, you know, most of the rangers that exist in the parks are paid for by ecotourism. Um, so that's 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 a good thing. Um, and it is beneficial and it is helping. Okay, so we've got to the big reveal. Told you about these guys, how they live, what happened to them to get their numbers so low and, and how people tried to boost that back up. Um, so all of these incredible efforts, and they were extreme efforts. I have to stress that this wasn't an easy task and it's not, you know, a usual thing to employ armed guards to, to um, you know, protect your back garden hedgehog which do need protecting too also i'm not minimizing that um but i'm just sort of saying that these were extreme efforts that were employed um to help these guys in the mountains so these extreme efforts have led to around an 80 percent rise in population over three decades of effort so in 2018 numbers were last counted at 1063 individuals 1,063 mountain gorillas up from barely 250. And that's amazing. As I said, I don't want to mislead. The task wasn't easy. And the threats are still very real for these populations. Um, If you guys haven't seen it, um, I recommend the film Virunga. Um, It's on Netflix still. um, And it's, it's basically an exploration into the lives of these mountain gorillas and the lives of the rangers that are working so hard to protect them um and it's emotional it's heart-wrenching it really shows the vulnerabilities of the natural world um and the greed that people have and the incon like just not even considering the needs of another species which is terribly sad and and they look at um soco international so this is a company who were exploring Virunga to try and get oil um, out of the ground which is you know too bad in two ways because oil gross fossil fuels gross and second destroying mountain gorilla habitat they the company still deny um looking for oil in this area they still deny that to this day um but obviously the film goes more into that and sort of shows evidence and how they went behind the scenes to to get these guys um and also in in Virunga, when it was being filmed, it just so happened that um, a bit of unrest was happening at that exact time. Um, it was the M23 Rebellion, um, a group of rebels against the Democratic Republic of Congo's government. Um, and it was sort of, this fighting had come out of the Second Congo War, which obviously finished back in the early 2000s. Um, but then this rebellion front, they were also called the Congolese Revolutionary Army, um, they started rebelling in 2012 and that stopped in 2013. Um, just as sort of Arunga was being filmed, but it was it's interesting to see how those dynamics really sort of threaten um, the people, of course, as well, and, and the species um, that they're working hard to protect. But it is, it is a really 
it's a tough watch but it's also really touching as well and you see the relationships between the gorillas and the rangers um so sorry i went off on a bit of a tangent about veronica the film there but um i definitely do recommend giving that a watch um and that sort of leads me onto my point as well that we must recognize the rangers that have done this incredible work and recognize um that actually 170 of these rangers have lost their lives for this effort so thanks guys like absolutely from the bottom of my heart and from the from the gorillas and from you know everybody who loves the planet as a whole thank you for doing that So back onto more positive notes, as I say, like this is a fragile success story, but it is a success story nonetheless. The community effort, passionate individuals coming together and making a difference. And, you know, that's the message that I want to be putting out. You know, it's not going to be easy. Nothing worth doing ever is, but it can be done. The mountain gorillas themselves, they do remain a conservation dependent species that must be protected but we also must celebrate their triumph as clawing back from the brink of extinction. With things like Virunga raising awareness and people getting so involved with conservation efforts, like I need to give a quick shout out um, to Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi. Um, they have actually funded, um, so Diane Fossey's Gorilla Fund International, Ellen DeGeneres and Portia de Rossi have funded um, for a permanent home in Rwanda for the building of this big campus um, called the Ellen Campus, which is lovely. Um, so it was a gift from the couple and construction is underway now and it finishes in 2021. Um, so, yeah, people like that. Um, all the all the efforts all around the world um, from WWF, Flora and Fauna International and the African Wildlife Fund, all of these things coming together, we can do it. We can do it. And we've done it. Mountain gorillas are still with us. Their numbers are still growing. It's still, as I say, it's still fragile, but things are becoming more stable. Things are becoming safer in the countries and it's getting better. And the rising numbers is only a testament to that. Um, and it kind of makes me a little bit emotional. <laughs> it really does. Um, because it's just so incredible and we can, we can do it. We can replicate this success in other ways. Um, so have faith. And just to repeat those numbers, 240 individuals to 1,063. Bloody incredible. So after some quite heavy um, topics there, I'm now going to give you some fun little facts about mountain gorillas because that's always fun, isn't it? Okay, so fun fact number one. We share around 98% of our DNA with gorillas, which is pretty mind-blowing when you think about it. But, you know, if you've ever been to a zoo and looked a gorilla in, dead in the eyes, then, yeah, you can definitely see it. And I 100% know that they're definitely more intelligent than some people I've come across in my lifetime. Fun fact number two. The male average weight for a fully grown gorilla is 180 kilograms or 30 stone if you're imperial but that is a big big chap you think you know big rugby players um in the league are not anywhere near that kind of weight so that's pretty terrifying but freaking cool at the same time um fun fact number three they can eat all day long much like me and many of you i'm sure 
and like me it's mostly a veggie diet also uh, so it's mainly leaves and shoots um, they will eat snails ants and bark as well um, but they just are proving as well that you don't need to eat meat three times a day um, yeah greens are good uh, fun fact number four so silverbacks are called as such because from about 12 years old they develop a silver section over their back and hips which gives the back that silvery look which leads us to the lovable wonderful well-known silverback gorilla and fun fact last fun fact a group of gorillas is commonly called a band or a troop or less commonly a whoop so on that note Let's give a whoop for my special guest this episode. It is Jessie Panazolo. We first met when we were working out in Madagascar um, on a conservation research project out there. We were researching species in the forest. There was a marine arm of it as well, but we were in the forest um, surveying the behaviour of black lemurs um, and doing some count surveys of amphibs and reptiles in the area and some bird ident surveys as well which was incredibly fun and amazing and just gave me the opportunity to meet Jessie who is literally one of the most impassioned and motivated young conservationists out there and she will go far um she's had a colorful history and some amazing achievements including getting subway um to stop putting palm oil in their cookies which I will ask her about and she can tell you more about um but at the moment, her main thing that she's doing is lonely conservationists. Um, so you can find them online, lonelyconservationists.com. Um, and the, it basically exists as a community for conservationists across the world. Um, and it has five core missions um, of bringing people together in the community and providing communication between people and really upholding conservationists' mental health. As anyone in the field knows, sometimes that's quite difficult. <laughs> um, so basically giving a voice to conservationists um, to enable them to really get those amazing, actually paid um, opportunities to make sure that they're valued for their work, overcome imposter syndrome, all of these things which, if you're listening to this podcast, then you may have experienced yourself. Um, it's a really, really incredible, uplifting, supportive community, um, and it's growing day by day. Uh, so without further ado, let us talk to the founder of Lonely Conservationists, Jessie Panatello. Okay, so just a quick little aside before the interview with Jessie. The audio is a bit funny at times. Um, I didn't want to edit bits out because it took away from the conversation and parts of the interview. Um, so please do bear with it. It does get better as the interview goes on. Um, and when only one person is talking, you know, asking the question or answering the question, it's fine. It's just when we're in that more sort of conversational sort of bouncing off each other kind of thing that if we're both talking at once it gets a bit a bit crackly and I think that's because just of the distance between us I'm in the UK she's in Australia um so yeah please do bear with it um I know it's not great hopefully that'll be better in subsequent episodes cool thanks guys hello oh hello hey good Good morning. Is that yes. right? It is the morning. <laughs> right and early. Just me, Jay. Yeah. Yay. How are you doing? Um, good. Hopefully I'm awake enough for this. It will be fun. 
and hopefully I'm not too tired. <laughs> It'll all be fine. <laughs> but with the magic of editing and music and such, it will be incredible. <laughs> hey, are you nervous? Yeah, super nervous. <laughs> you're my first. You're my first time. I've always wanted to hear you say that, Luke. oh yeah uh, well I recorded um like the bulk of the episode earlier today and then I listened to it back and realized that you hear the washing machine in the background the entire time (laughs) I'm gonna have to record the entire thing (laughs) that's what I was like I should sit on this beanbag and get comfortable. And then I realized every time I moved, like even breathe, you'd hear the sound of beans rushing. So I was like, that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. It's so like, yeah, you think in a different headspace, like sound that you wouldn't usually mm. recognize as sound almost. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> so now do you have to re-record the whole thing again? Or can you edit oh, out the washing machine? <laughs> I tried, but I don't think my... um editing skills are quite up to scratch to do that yet <laughs> How long were you um it was about it was only about 35 minutes so it's fine i can do okay. it yeah That's <laughs> yeah it's a lesson i've learned from this mistake you will never have the washing on at the same time again exactly i thought i was being efficient <laughs> <laughs> that's what i think and then it's like oh like when I put the washing on and then I go to jump in the shower and I'm like, oh, this is not fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we live and we learn. We do. And things yeah. get better. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'll just jump straight in, I guess. Do I it. don't know if I'll keep that bit in. Maybe I will. Maybe people need to hear about my the washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it up. so yeah the first question I wanted to ask you is a little um hark back to um a little anecdote in Madagascar actually um what is a a group of gorillas called a mist that's the official (laughs) scientific term (laughs) (laughs) I was talking earlier about Diane Fossey and gorillas in the mist and I was like oh my god I need to ask Jesse about (laughs) mist So basically, <laughs> for the listeners who are not privy to this experience, we um, basically were the two people on camp in Madagascar who were obsessed with primates and really, really loved primates. And so we were doing a pub quiz and the question was what the group of gorillas called. And Jesse and I were on the same team. And obviously everybody thought, oh, of course they're going to know. But we, we did not know. And so we have now coined the term mist for a group of gorillas, which I think personally is better than band or troop because that's just boring. So, and the best can... thing is we, we managed to convince them that that was the colloquial term that all the like <laughs> true primate nerds use and they let us have the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we can start a global movement now. Everybody, a group of gorillas is called a mist. <laughs> called a mist. Get behind it. If anybody asks you, it is a mist. <laughs> exactly but that's the so, beauty of the internet nobody could look anything up there and I remember one time somebody asked me what a group of kangaroos was and I had a major mental break and then at <laughs> three in the morning lying in my hut one day I just remembered it and I wanted to run out in the camp and like scream that it was a mob to everybody but it just <laughs> comes to the wrong time 
<laughs> if you're running around screaming at three in the morning, mob, 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 some issues. Not the best idea. So I'm glad I just calmly the next day was like, it's a mob, and they're like, what are you talking about? Because they forgot all about the conversation we we're having anyway, and it wasn't important to them anymore. <laughs> oh well, I'm sure that now I will remember it. Mm, I've never forgotten a mob ever since. There you go. It's a good way mm. to learn. So um, I sort of, I recorded a little intro for you, um, just saying like who you are. Um, and I mentioned, um, you know, your colourful work history, like tackling Subway and palm oil and the cookies, um, and then sort of moving on to lonely conservationists and how that has flourished and grown. Um, but first of all, I wanted to go back to um, little Jessie, little girl Jessie, and what her hopes and dreams were and how she first got into sort of the conservation world and being interested in saving the world, basically. Ah, uh, yes, tiny Jessie. She was <laughs> full of <that. laughs> Well, basically, <laughs> um, my mum and my brother went to Canada for a wedding and I couldn't go because I was toilet training. So that's good for me. <laughs> um, but they came back home with a stuffed toy gorilla that basically changed my life. And when I saw this gorilla, I recognized that it had little nostrils like me, ears like me, hands like me. And I was just so compelled at three years old to know everything I could about these gorillas and about a lot of their other cousins like chimpanzees and orangutans. And the more I looked into it, even as a young child, I could see the decimation of the habitat. Like that was the first thing that came up whenever I was researching these creatures. And then when oh, I was five oh. years old, I went to my mum and I asked her, mum, how do I save the orangutans? And her friend was with her at the time and was bewildered by me at five years old asking her this question. But she didn't know how, of course. <laughs> Apparently that's when I learned that adults don't actually know everything. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. It was a call for me. But I was filled with rage that adults knew that this decimation was happening and adults were in a position to do something about this decimation, but they weren't doing anything. So at just five years old, I decided that I'm going to grow up and I'm going to take this matter into my own hands and I'm going to do something about it. So um, that's my origin story. <laughs> <laughs> you were basically Greta before Greta was Greta. You were the um, but yeah there wasn't social media at the time so I just had to sit with my angst for years and years and years yeah speaking of like gorilla noticing how um alike we are to gorillas have you seen that picture of the gorilla that's got a bit of um vitiligo and they're losing the pigment in its knuckles and it's got a picture of its knuckles which are just totally devoid of their usual black color and it looks like a human hand just like gripping this pole or whatever it's crazy like if anybody wants to google that then because it's insane it looks like an just a regular human hand it's yeah quite mind-blowing are you telling me there's a hand photo that i have not seen of a prime oh, there, might there might be oh so a bit of background as well jesse is obsessed with primate hands which i mean who shouldn't be really because they're they're pretty bloody cool yeah, the best hands are Laura's hands. You can look them up as well. They're the yeah. best hand, primate hands on the market. Not that I'm suggesting you should black market trade primate hands. Don't do that. Just appreciate them from a distance. Yeah. Funny, actually, I was talking about how, yeah, gorillas are 
um, poached for like trophies of their hands and feet. And like, well, now, now we know where they're going to. <laughs> <laughs> I just have a room full of hands. There's a secret room. I don't let anybody in. And when they come over, they're like, what's in that room? I'm like, do not go in there. <laughs> It's like Fifty Shades, but for yeah, <laughs> legal wildlife. <laughs> yeah, I am not actually a poacher. In fact, I disclaimer for the opposite. So just a disclaimer. <laughs> just in case anybody was starting to believe it and starting to, you know, contact the traffic organisation. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> So I loved your origin story and um, yeah, the, the evolution of your superpowers. Um, so from there, like how did that lead you into um, sort of what you're doing now? Like where, like I know what you did at uni, but did you want to tell us like a bit about what you did at uni and your honours um, and then how sort of you moved on to other conservation jobs in the field from that? Sure. So basically, ever since that moment where I decided I was going to be the Lord and Saviour of all primates, <laughs> I spent every waking hour trying to volunteer with the orangutan project. Um, I did my honours degree in biodiversity and conservation, and I ended up completing my honours in a North Sumatran rainforest, working with the top orangutan scientists in Indonesia, and also with elephants, because they're also important species in that forest environment. But and then I poop. realized, sorry? <laughs> and poop. Um, then I realized that all these people were not happy. It's a very patriarchal country. It's really challenging to live there. Um, and also orangutans tried to kill me and I wasn't a big fan of their behavior towards me. Albeit we were going with these guides into the forest and they were trying to impress us because they're not used to having women around them all the time. So they were <laughs> kiss squeaking at the orangutans, they were hanging out underneath the tree. And then all of a sudden this mum orangutan starts trying to protect her baby and she starts grabbing this tree next to the tree she's in, ripping it out of the ground, swinging it oh back and forth and chucking it in our direction. And we're all running for our lives. And I was like, this is the moment where the thing I've worked my whole life to save is going to end my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a bit of poetry to that. Mm, but luckily <laughs> I survived. And that's when I realized to integrate elephants into the mix because I never once saw one and it was probably for the best. <laughs> <laughs> None of them tried to kill you. <laughs> yeah, I like to keep my wildlife at a distance um, for safety measures. So yes. <laughs> after that, I realized, well, I, I looked around when I was in North Sumatra and I saw there was all these women in the nurseries and they were planting trees and there were their children involved and they were passing knowledge onto their children about the importance of forest restoration. There was the men going off on their motorbikes and fetching water to um, replenish the forest ecosystem back with moisture. And I looked around and I wondered where my place was in all of this. And I realized that I'm not a part of this long-term change. I don't live here. I'm not part of mm -hmm. um, transitioning the culture or telling these stories to the next generation. So basically I realized I had to go back home to Australia and be a part of the long-term change there. But that proved to be really challenging because I had a few bad jobs in a row where I just felt my self-worth plummet because I wasn't either getting paid well or treated well. And I saw my mental health declining. 
I saw myself getting so scared to go to work in the morning and not sleeping the night beforehand because of I was just afraid of the way I was going to be treated and that's kind of what let me led me to lonely conservationist is that I thought I was going to be working for this job that I was um, acting as a skilled volunteer for for about six months and I was doing arguably more than the paid staff were doing and helping them and then when I got time to hiring people and employing people, they looked over me because apparently I didn't have enough experience in NGOs, even though they saw the way I worked. Um, they liked having me in the, in the working environment, but none of that mattered when it came to hiring. So I kind of was defeated thinking that I'd have to give up my whole life in conservation because there was just going to be heaps of bad bosses or unhealthy environments or my work would never be good enough or my skills would never be vast enough mm -hmm. um, and I felt really lonely in the industry and then the second I was thinking that my friend from Spain messaged me saying she was really lonely in conservation because her visas weren't getting accepted or weren't coming through for her to follow up her elephant research in Malaysia so she was stuck in a totally different country unable to continue with her work and um then I realized there must be more people than just myself feeling this way. Mm -hmm. And now I'm sitting here with over 2000 people feeling this way. So I was vindicated in my, in my <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> Definitely. So Lonely Conservationist is, is an online community, isn't it? To bring people together who are feeling bad in the conservation industry, like they're not valued, their skills aren't valued, if their mental health is suffering. Um, and you sort of connect through blogs and through people sort of sharing their experiences. Um, and it's growing into something more now, isn't it? Like you're able to sort of get um, conservationists around the world, paid opportunities um, through through lonely conservationists, through what you're doing. Um, did you want to sort of explain a bit better than I can <laughs> um, about the sort of side of it? Sure. Well, yeah, so it all started with the blogs because the breaking point for me was telling my story and finally opening up the conversation about what actually I was going through. Because I think in conservation, nobody really talks about what they're going through because it's such a competitive field. Like mm -hmm. you might have 200 graduates or something and only one job available, especially where I grew up in South Australia, there would only be like five jobs in the whole state and everybody would live and die in their jobs and you're just sitting there waiting for somebody to die so you can take over their job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very vicious society. <laughs> um, but, I think because there's only a few jobs, everyone is trying to uphold themselves to a level of perfectionism that is unreasonable because everyone mm -hmm. is competing with so many other people. And I think for that reason, nobody really shares the downsides to working conservation. And especially when on social media, you often see people trekking through the forest or posing with animals and everything looks so glamorous and like they have Jane Goodall, David Attenborough's life. Um, and I've never heard anybody talk about what actually happened where you're walking through, when Lou and I were in Madagascar, we were walking through mangroves that people were going to the toilet in and that oh, was our day-to-day -day thing of trekking through human feces. Yeah, literally. And nobody talks about that. <laughs> no, it definitely doesn't get as much at that. Yeah. So I think when I told my story about what I was actually feeling, it was relatable to people because this is something that they were also feeling but didn't know was a normal thing to feel. So I had no idea all these stories were going to take off 
the way that they did. We had 50 published last year, which was incredible. And we're going to start um, publishing them again this year, which is really exciting. Um, but I think telling stories is the original way for humans to communicate and pass on information. And I think if everybody was feeling how I felt, which is that nobody understood what they were going through and they finally found this platform where everybody was talking about how they feel the exact same way, it was pretty refreshing. Um, but then when I realized there were so many people experiencing this, I felt this sense of responsibility. Like I had to do something about it. I was like, oh shit, I've rallied all these people here and now they're all looking up to me. They probably, I don't even know if they were, but I just felt responsible for all of them. So <laughs> I went through a business incubator to try and work out how I could make this a business and how I could employ some of these people or solve this problem of people not being valued for their work in conservation. And so a couple of weeks ago, I was privileged enough to take a young entomologist from the Lonely Conservationist group out with me to do some surveys on a new property. And hopefully that's the first of many people that I can employ and give opportunities to and see them valued for their work. And it was really crazy because this guy said he was going to give up on entomology forever. He thought there was no space in the industry for him. But then I was able to give him the opportunity to go look at bugs for somebody who really needed that information. And it got him back on the bandwagon and made him realize how valuable his skills were. So that was really yeah. incredible. That's amazing. Like that's yeah that's so good to hear especially on this podcast I'm trying to make it like a really positive space for positive stories and positive vibes out into the universe because she needs it um and yeah to hear things like that is amazing and the safe space that you've created for people to come to and to be able to share and open up um yeah it's it's nothing short of revolutionary um especially as you say when you have to keep this veneer of perfection and I'm, I'm the best scientist. I am uh, this, that and the other. I am stoic and it's not always like that. So thank you for doing what you've done and creating that safe space for people to be able to to talk and share and and have a community that stretches from, you know, yeah, from the UK to Australia to the States to all over the world. Yeah, it's crazy. And if you guys don't know, Lou actually wrote her own blog, which kind of sums up that having to look perfect for everybody, but then it not necessarily going to plan. So if you want to learn more about Lou's story, you should go have a read of that one. <laughs> Just, yeah, putting myself out there in every form possible, in writing, in voice. <laughs> you can have a 360 experience. Soon she'll release a food that tastes like her and you can either yeah. get that smell. <laughs> a smell that smells like, oh no, nobody needs that. No. <laughs> So, um, where can people find you online? Um, yeah, tell us your website handles and your social media handles. Promote yourself. Okay, well, the website is www.lonelyconservationist.com. Instagram is at lonelyconservationist. And we do have a Twitter that I'm like baby steps trying to use, but for me, it's <laughs> like it doesn't come that naturally, but it's at lonelyconserve. So, they are all the places. You can also support us on Patreon if you want to get some secret insights to the behind the scenes going on. Um, and that's at patreon.com slash lonelyconservationist. Fab. So, yeah, so the two people who might listen to this first episode. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody go and follow all of those things and give money as well if you can. Um, 
Yes. So I think that's most of my serious questions. Um, okay. <laughs> um, I have a couple more questions. Um, oh, oh, the first one was to give you the platform to tell. So the beginning of this episode was um, on mountain gorillas and how sort of their population's growing and the conservation efforts that's going into helping those guys. Um, and obviously they are a great ape. So I wanted to give you this platform to vent about gibbon and to tell people what a gibbon is. Because <laughs> so yes. many people well, This is something that's of high contention in my life. And <laughs> it's always been a point of conflict between me and literally every single person that I come across in a, just a general public sense. They might not be in a science field and just say we'll be at the zoo or in a forest and we'll come across this gibbon. For those of you who don't know what a gibbon is, they're the most pure and beautiful magical creature on the planet. <laughs> their arms are as long as spaghetti and their legs are also as long as spaghetti. They're basically spaghetti. They're basically spaghetti, like those Betty spaghetti dolls from our childhood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what gibbons are, but fluffy with the biggest, most beautiful eyes you've ever seen. They're very monogamous. They have amazingly cute relationships and they love to cuddle. Basically, they're just perfection in every way. Um, <laughs> everyone. Doing the gibbon arms. <laughs> gibbons are, if there was a religion about worshipping gibbons, I'd be the first one on board with <laughs> They are just incredible beings. Everyone should see one. Um, but if you see one with a, a person outside of the scientific community, you might hear this ex exclam exclamation. I can speak an exclamation. <laughs> okay, I'm just not <laughs> going to say that one. <laughs> you might, you might hear them exclaim, oh my God, what a cute monkey. And to which I will, I will correct them. Actually, this is a lesser ape that you are looking at, which is a bit sad because there's Why five I don't know. And then there's just lesser apes, which is gibbons. And I is feel a bit bad. Yeah. Little baby. need all the extra love, basically. So yeah. Gibbon. One time I was sitting in a lecture and my lecturer on animal behavior was talking and then she had this picture of a gibbon off and then she's like, somebody told me like, oh no, somebody asked a question during the lecture and they're like, oh, how do you know the monkey's doing this? And she's like, Gibbons are not monkeys. I was like, yes, 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 yes. And she's like, they are great apes. And I was like, no. no. And she was like my favorite lecturer. And I was like pent up with rage and I couldn't say anything until one day we were at a conference together and she was really drunk and we'd all been drinking. And I was like, Sonia, that was her name. I was like, I forgive you. And she's like, for what? And I was like, <laughs> for calling Gibbons great apes. They're lesser apes. And she's like, why didn't you just correct me after the lecture? <laughs> <laughs> That's not how I operate, Sonia. <laughs> I just have to be very dramatic about everything and wait till we're both slightly drunk at an animal behavior conference and dramatically announce that I forgive you <laughs> for this mistake. That, I mean, she tried. She at least knew it wasn't a monkey. <laughs> she, gets, she gets half a point for that. Yeah. She gets half points. But for any of you listening, the two of you out there, you need to know that <laughs> gibbons are lesser apes and you should carry on the message with pride as well as that a group of gorillas is a mist. Lesser apes are important. 
And they're the two take home messages for today. <laughs> yes. One of those may be factually correct, the other less so. The but, other yeah. <laughs> the trend that we are starting and hoping to take off within the primate community. <laughs> <laughs> hashtag gorillas are earnest. <laughs> yes, hashtag they are earnest. <laughs> Uh, amazing and it makes for great like if you'd have just gone and corrected her after the lecture then it wouldn't have led to a great story so mm. and I think we're correcting professionals and PhDs and I've been teaching for years and I'm just like an undergrad in their lecture <laughs> getting wound up that they've said misinformation <laughs> I think when you grow yeah. up you realize a lot of things and this is the same thing that I realized when I was three but I had to relearn it again when I was like <laughs> 22 and that is that adults don't know everything. <laughs> yeah, time and time is true. Coming <laughs> yeah, and nobody ever feels like an adult. It's the world's dirty little secret. Yeah, I'm sitting here at 27 years old thinking, how am I supposed to persist in this life as an adult? And I think everybody keeps thinking that until they die. And that's just an mm -hmm. illusion that everyone cast upon you, that everyone has their life together and knows what they're doing. <laughs> Oh yeah, 100%. Yes, definitely. And on that note, I'll ask you a couple of final silly childish questions because we all like a bit of fun. Yes, um, we do. Then my first one is of any animal adaptation in the entire world that you can think of, what would you most like to possess? Still as a human, but the animal adaptation, what would you like to have and why? Hmm. Let's see. I instantly am trying to think of an animal that could like understand multiple frequencies or something because oh, cool. it's my dream to just be able to understand any language as I hear it. But I don't think there's an animal that has that exact level of understanding. Mm, but yeah. maybe like a really social animal that has really good communication skills or a good social surrounding, a good level of empathy. I don't know. Because I, I immediately thought gills and I'd be like, it was so cool if you could like go underwater without any apparatuses to help you breathe. Yeah. And then I was like, no, that's creepy. I don't want slits in my <laughs> neck. <laughs> be like in Harry Potter. <laughs> Maybe. So I read this book about cephalopods and I just was like, amazed by them how they've mm -hmm. evolved um, their intelligence independently from the intelligence of birds or mammals or literally any other animal and I literally took my partner out to dinner just to tell him about cephalopods <laughs> after I read this book like three hours of me talking about cephalopods <laughs> oh, so I had a story the other day about an octopus who was he was in a psychologist's office in a tank and he was fed all these shrimp one day and one of the shrimp was rotten and then the psychologist went off to lunch or something, came back, and then in the corridor, so not even in his office, in the corridor, mm -hmm. there was a rotten shrimp on the floor of the corridor. And the only thing he could figure out was that the octopus had somehow squeezed out of his tank with this one rotten shrimp in his batch of nice shrimp and, like, threw it on the floor in disgust and then got back in his tank and just waited for the psychologist to come back and discover it. Like, how crazy yeah. is that? I know, this is what I'm talking about. They're worthy of three hours of storytelling over a dinner time. 
And they don't have one central brain, like they have brain nerves all up and down their arms. So I think if I could monopolize on the intelligence that's so unique in cephalopods, I think I could be even more revolutionary and just have a better quality of life. But their lifespans are shorter. So maybe they just make the most of the time Mm. that they have, which is also a good thing. (laughs) Yeah, concentrated time. Concentrated, badass, intelligent time. That's Finger <laughs> Amazing. I love that. <laughs> and then a final one, which is, it's just always interesting to ask people. It's not animal related, but it's just a fun one. And I feel like you'd have a good answer for this one. Um, so in a movie of your life, who would play you? Hmm. This is my downfall because I wish I watched more movies and knew more actors. Is it weird <laughs> to say like Louis Theroux because he's just so awkward, awkward and oh, so weird and he's straight to the point and really blunt and I feel like I relate to him and those things. Like I would probably never get naked and take a photo of me in like a porn studio. I don't have his bravery <laughs> but I do have his awkwardness and like frankness that sometimes like really weirds people out. <laughs> and his height. And his height. <laughs> and his bad thing. <laughs> Yeah, because gender is a social construct also, so it doesn't matter oh. he's a dude. Yeah, and I always get, so in Indonesia, people say, Jesse, you're like a man to us. We respect you. <laughs> so basically, a lot of people see me as a man anyway, so it wouldn't change that much. <laughs> you know what's weird? Am I just so modern that I didn't even factor in gender in that question? I was just thinking purely of attributes. And when you're like, gender is not a construct, I was like, oh, yeah, I probably should have chose a woman. <laughs> no, I'm glad you chose a man. Yes. This is 2020. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't know my brain was this this futuristic. So, this future. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, I'm so progressive. <laughs> oh, my God. Lou, you've made the octopus genes kick in straight away. <laughs> it's happening. Wow. Construct. If anybody wants to go on this podcast, your answer to the animal question will actually impact your life for the rest of eternity. So just a warning. <laughs> yeah. So don't pick something weird. <laughs> or yeah, weird. don't pick like an antichinist that just has sex until it dies of exhaustion <laughs> don't pick like a sea cucumber whose ass is its mouth yeah or has pearlfish climb up it when they're afraid <laughs> <laughs> God. Uh, and on that note <laughs> yes we just ended on scared sea cucumber no scared pearlfish taking refuge in a very surprised sea cucumber <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait to hear the feedback from this episode. I know. Thank you. <laughs> Is there anything final you'd like to add for the audience, for the world at large, or just a little nice little message? The floor a is nice yours. Nice little message. Sure. Well, I guess something I've learned from my community of lonely conservationists is that imposter syndrome or not feeling good enough is a total epidemic. Everybody studies for a long time or reads a lot and goes outside and they're so passionate about what they do and they know so much but they all think they don't know anything and the more I've realized how much people think that they don't know things and how much people are afraid it makes me realize that maybe if we go forward in life with a little bit of confidence 
that might set us apart from everybody else because if everybody else is so self-conscious about what they're doing maybe they won't notice if you come in and have that flair and that swagger to give you that little confident edge I think it's really helped me in the past week to realize that so many people feel inadequate in their knowledge or in their skills that it means like maybe as a life hack I can I can just act confident and maybe everyone will be too involved in their own inadequacies to to even notice so that's my final piece of information is that if you feel if you feel like you have imposter syndrome or you're not good enough or something just try just go out there and just try because most likely you probably have everything you need to go out and conquer the world and do whatever you want to do so that's my message <laughs> that's amazing oh hear that everyone yeah good <laughs> okay good um, really nice. oh oh first interview is is, is Yay. you did it you overcame your imposter syndrome and you did something cool yeah oh oh my hands are so sweaty oh gross <laughs> i don't know why it's like what could she ask me next yeah. <laughs> very probing personal questions it's good i like it i like to be probed no, as well again i do not collect primate hands and i do not like to be <laughs> nobody profile me from this conversation <laughs> oh thank you so so much for being my first interviewee oh you've been amazing and it I will call such a pleasure yay I'll definitely call on you again okay <laughs> I'll be the, the guest every second week just to okay. oh, yeah. yeah just to update everybody about sea cucumbers and other weird animal sex facts yeah oh yeah yeah we'll have jesse time where we get a little sex fact each every couple of weeks that'll be amazing, that will be amazing. <laughs> just a little here is jesse time with jesse <laughs> <laughs> you've already got your own jingle <laughs> i know it's just meant to be <laughs> oh my god oh i'm smiling so much oh i feel really good yay thank you so yay. much no worries <laughs> thank you for having me that is quite all right. The listeners will be demanding for you back. I can see it now. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to hang up the phone, stop the recording, do the thing which does the thing. <laughs> do all the thing. Do all the things. Again, thank you so, so much for your time. And yeah, as Jesse said, please go and check out Lonely Conservationists, um, the website on Instagram and on Twitter. But maybe twitter in a couple of weeks when he's <laughs> figured it out a little bit more um but yeah please go and, and look that up and support that it's an amazing movement and it's definitely helped me so you know if anybody's feeling like a lonely conservationist then definitely check it out um but yeah thank you so so much and thank you we'd love to have everybody on board to make the world a little bit less lonely definitely Okay, I'll speak to you soon. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay, so thank you guys for listening if you made it this far. Um just a quick note to say thanks for listening. Um I hope it was okay. Um yeah, very experimental, very like a little pet project at the moment. Um I haven't really edited the audio too much because I wanted to keep it really authentic and 
sort of be able to track my own journey if you like my own progress through the podcasting editing world so it probably sounds very amateurish and you know I hope you think that's cute and endearing um, so it's pretty raw it's pretty you know in its in its birth form um but that's yeah that's that's the vibe I was going for that's how I wanted to keep it um I know the audio with Jesse is a bit crackly at times um and I think that's because I was here in the UK and she was in Australia and we were talking you know through a recording app um so when we sort of spoke at the same time things got a bit crackly but I think hopefully for the most part it was okay and the content was still fun enough to keep you going through um yeah so basically thank you so much um another episode will be out in a couple of weeks this one will be the next one will be the Mauritius Kestrel um with an interview with Emily Linney um all very exciting stuff um and yeah so if you did want to contact me at the moment I don't have any social media handles for the podcast itself I'm sort of waiting for it to gain momentum and so I actually have content to to post about um but my personal ones, um, you can find me, um, Louise JC on Instagram if you wanted to get in touch that way. Um, you can also email me at ljcaudry91 at gmail.com. That's L-J-C-O-R-D-E-R-Y 91 at gmail.com. So that's how you can get in touch if you so wish. Um, I believe you can also get in touch through the Anchor app. Um, You can add um, voice messages to me on here. Um, So yeah, if you did want to give any feedback or get in contact or anything like that, that's how you can. Um, And thanks for making it this far. Thanks for listening. Um, And I'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Take care. Bye-bye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light.